cannot see that we have visitors with little ones, so I will spare you the normal address. Brethren, we're going to read two passages this morning. They're parallel passages. Uh, We're going to begin with Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. And there we're going to read verses 5 through 9. I also urge you to put your ribbon marker or your finger or whatever you hold a place with to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We will read Titus first and then turn to 1 Timothy 3. If you would stand with me once again. Many beautiful passages throughout Scripture which the Lord's people stand in the reading of His Word. And I pray that our standing is not simply a habit, but our desire to stand as one before our great and holy God as he addresses us from his word. Titus chapter 1, begin in verse 5. This is the word of God. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, the things that are lacking, and ordain elders in every City, as I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless, as the steward of God, not self willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given. To filthy lucre. But a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 1 through 7. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, Given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, 
one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Amen. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his words. Let's unite our hearts once again in prayer, asking that the grace and blessing of God would come down. Father, I thank thee. I praise thee for the mighty love thou hast shown us in thy son and in thy spirit. And we thank thee that thou didst have it written down and preserved for us, that the blessed and living words of God might come and move our hearts to love and praise and adoration to repentance, to faith, and to love thee back, to love thy people, to magnify our Christ in every aspect of our lives. We thank Thee for the Word. We thank Thee for its glorious, bright, and shining truth. We thank Thee, O Lord, when it is a spirit that pierces down between the joints and marrows and draws us out in repentance. We thank Thee for the joyful sound that it sets before us. Jesus saves. And, O God, how we thank Thee that Thou dost manifest to us grace, Mercy, love, patience, and so many other glorious things. Father, we thank Thee for Thy gifts. And we thank Thee this morning for the gift of the Holy Spirit. O Spirit of God, I pray that we have not grieved Thee. That we have come with our hearts purged in prayer by looking to Christ, His cross, His blood that washed us clean. Blessed be thy holy name, and may our hearts forevermore rejoice in a God that truly saves, in a God that truly cleanses, in a God that truly sanctifies. Blessed God, we love thee. Oh, may all thy children's hearts, regardless of the condition in which they walked into this building this morning, may all their hearts be lifted up to praise thee, Oh, Father, may we cast off, may we repent of every sin of the week, every grudge, oh God. May we, not be, may we not be guilty of dragging some ugly grudge up into thy congregation. Father, I pray that our hearts truly would come and listen to thy word. Father, they can ignore me but not thy word. O God, come with that living word. Feed thy flock. Feed thy sheep. Thy thy regenerate ones, Lord, are hungry. They want thee. They want to be instructed. They want to know. Many here truly want to know. What do we look for in an elder? O God, I pray that thou wouldst make that 
uh, even more clear again today. Lord Jesus, look at thy dear blood-bought purchase here this morning and in every congregation around this world. Many have worshipped the hours before us. Some will be hours after us. But Father, I pray that our voices have been one continuous chorus of praise and glory and thanksgiving to Thee, the holy, holy, holy God. We magnify Thee. Oh, may Thy majesty, may Thy great love pour down today. May we sense that we are in the presence of the holy God. Father, may we chase away every distraction, every wicked thought or wicked demon that would interfere with our worship. And may the Holy Spirit fill the temple with joy, praise, attention, belief. And may it bear the fruit, O God, of obedience to Thee. Now, help us. Bless Thy children. Feed them. Save thy children, feed them also, and lift them up forever. And I pray it in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I am wonderfully comfortable up here today. That probably means some of you are freezing. Is anybody turning blue? Are are you okay? I definitely don't want an icy congregation this morning. Okay. When our lovely Lord Jesus Christ... The head of the church appoints a man to teach and to rule his sheep. He qualifies that man by giving him identifiable characteristics. A bishop then, says Paul, must be blameless. The husband of one wife and so on. We've read it in Timothy. We've read it in Titus. And if a congregation has been properly instructed in the Word of God, it will recognize such a man sooner or later. His gifts and characteristics are the work of the Holy Spirit, shaping and preparing him for service to Christ and his people. Thus far, we have considered that a candidate for eldership must be blameless. And as we've seen, blameless means to be free from any offense, scandalous or offensive, scandalous or disgraceful moral conduct. He's not perfect. He will fail at certain points. And I can guarantee you, I do not know a pastor And I know some wonderful, faithful, godly men. But every one of them at some point or another fails in these characteristics. But there's something that always follows, which is repentance. 
So he's not a perfect man, but he does not have a record among those who know him in or out of the church as a scoundrel, as a scandalous man. Matthew Henry said, quote, he must not lie under any scandal. He must give as little occasion for blame as can be. Because this would be a prejudice to his ministry and would reflect reproach upon his office. Close quote. That's right. People would have no desire to hear a man who is an obvious hypocrite. And it would also cast a shadow upon Christ Jesus and his church. Paul seems to say that if a man, a Christian man, has all the qualifications that follow, then he is blameless. The gospel, the power of God unto salvation, has transformed him and made him a disciple of Christ. And he is able to preach to others the gospel that saved him. We then considered the first and hotly debated qualification, the husband of one wife. That is, a one-woman man. I agree with commentator William Mounts, who summarized and said, quote, Paul could have said clearly, one, must be married. Two, not polygamous. Three, faithful to his wife. Or four, not remarried, divorced. Close quote. But under the Holy Spirit's leading, Paul did not. It would have settled almost all the arguments. But he gave it in a way and in a context that I believe we can discern. God plainly told the Levitical priests, a widow or a divorced woman or profane or a harlot, these shall he not take. Speaking of a priest. <clears throat> That's pretty plain. There, uh, uh, to my knowledge, there's no controversy about that. So the Holy Spirit did not speak through Paul in those words when he guided the apostle to write down the list of qualifications. So the context here <clears throat> helps us interpret Paul's thought. Each of the four interpretations is possible. And certainly, two of them uh, can be applied to what I believe is the final conclusion. But the best interpretation, I believe, of a one-woman man seems to be a spiritually and sexually faithful husband to his one wife. He's a one-woman man, and it's identifiable. Wayne Grudem makes this helpful comment, Quote, all the other qualifications listed by Paul refer to a man's present status, 
not his entire past life. For example, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, does not mean one who has never been violent, but one who is not now violent, but gentle. It does not mean one who has never been a lover of money, but one who is not now a lover of money. It does not mean one who has been above reproach for his whole life, but one who is now above reproach. If we made these qualifications apply to one's entire past life, then we would exclude from office almost everyone who became a Christian as an adult. For it is doubtful that any non-Christian could meet these qualifications. Close quote. That's really helpful. Because far too often I have seen people say, oh, well, you know, he used to be a drunkard. Is he a drunkard now? If Christ has saved him from that, that's not his status anymore. So it's vital that we don't look for someone who's been perfect all of his life. And we're certainly not looking for someone who's perfect now. But what can be said of him regarding all of these qualifications? That's the issue. Not one or two of them. All of them. He must be. All of them. Now, what Grudem says... And I believe that the scriptures teach very plainly. Let's remember, Paul had people put to death. That was the first thing Ananias was concerned about. Wait a minute, we've heard about this guy. And Jesus is saying, go to him. Uh, yeah, but he kills your people. He said, no, go. He's praying. Go. He's my chosen vessel. The Lord loves to lift us out of the dunghill of our idolatry and our sin to use us for his glory. So, that means that whatever a man was before he was converted to Christ, he must now be faithful to one woman. That's got to be his present and observable status. Now, all of this points to a simple fact. The Lord Jesus saves wicked men and women. He cleanses them with his precious blood. He grants them new life by his Holy Spirit. He makes them new creatures. And he gives them the grace to walk faithfully in his word. That's just a Christian. As a man matures in the faith and shows himself faithful to his wife, he models the faithfulness of Christ to his bride and reflects in a real, though imperfect way, Christ's holy love for his church. Now with that, we take up our next four qualifications. Our message is entitled, for lack of a better one, Vigilance, sobriety, good behavior, hospitality.
And may our gracious Heavenly Father grant us renewed and growing love for the blessed Son, Christ Jesus, with hearts made new by the Holy Spirit. So our first major thought here this morning is this. A candidate for the eldership must be vigilant. All of these um, qualifications are in verse 2. Paul says a bishop must be vigilant. Now let's, let's remember, at least for those of you that have been here, and for those who have not, um, this will help, I trust. But let's remember that the English must be translates a Greek word that means an unconditional necessity. An unconditional necessity. In other words, it is necessary. If this is not obvious, if it is not at least discernible in the man's life, however we may much love him, no matter how he serves and encourages the brethren, he's not an elder, or at least not yet. So Christ tells us through Paul that it is an unconditional necessity for an elder to be vigilant. Now, the, the KJV translators made an interesting choice by translating the Greek word with the English vigilant. Normally, the Greek word means one of two things. In the literal sense, it means temperate in the use of wine. In other words, self-control Self-control that avoids drunkenness. And that leads to the figurative sense. Sober. That is, self-control and clarity of mind that are needed in the service of God. Now, let me repeat that. It means a self-control. It means a clarity of mind that are needed in the service of God. So why did the translators choose vigilant? Which means carefully watching. Carefully attentive. On the lookout for possible danger. You get the picture? John Calvin helps us here. He comments. Erasmus the great Renaissance scholar, Erasmus has translated it watchful as the Greek word admits of either signification. The readers may make their own choice. Close quote. And that is exactly what the KJV translators did. At least one modern lexicon recognizes that definition. Mounts's Complete expository dictionary of Old and New Testament words defines it as vigilant, circumspect, self-controlled. Since Paul's next word in the list means sober, in fact, that's the word translated into English, sober, 
and it means self-controlled as well. And not given to wine appears a little later in the list. The translators chose an aspect of self-control. They narrowed down into one aspect of that self-control because all three of those words, all three of those qualifications have to do with a man being self-controlled. So, the translators chose that aspect of self-control, vigilant. Paul is probably referring to looking round on all sides watchfully. That's actually a beautiful picture. Looking around at all sides. An elder must be a man who understands what's going on around him. More of that in a minute. It's essential for a pastor. He must be aware of what's going on in his own heart. He must be aware of what's going on in his family. He must be aware of what's going on in his congregation. He must be aware of what's going on in his culture, foul and perverse as it may be. And he must be aware of what's going on in his world, at least in some manner. A man who's walking around with his head in the clouds and just thinking about, well, I, you know, I want to preach, is not fit. He's got to be a man who understands what's happening, at least to some degree. Nobody does it perfectly. No one. But he can't live in his own little world because he's a shepherd. He needs to know the sheep, not just the ones he likes to have over. He must be aware. He must be a man with at least a little built-in radar. Discernment and knowing God's sheep. Why? Because he's serving Jesus Christ who bought them with his blood. And he appoints weak and feeble shepherds to feed his flock. Just as we said last week, a, a man that's called to be an elder is simply serving Jesus Christ in relation to his people. Wise Solomon said in Proverbs, Be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks and look well to thy herds. God's pastor shepherds have understood down through the ages that the secondary meaning of that text, which is addressed to real life shepherds caring for the flock, they know that it applies to a pastor. The very name pastor, as we have seen, means shepherd. And this is God's flock. And we are responsible to him for how we teach it, how we deal with everyone. Philip Towner, 
A commentator says, quote, The overseer is to maintain command of his reason to be watchful and observant of things going on around him and balanced in his assessments. Close quote. By the way, for those of you visiting, I don't usually quote uh, men uh, all that often. I'm doing so uh, because many here have not heard any teaching about qualifications of an elder. And uh, I want everyone to know I'm not making it up on the fly. <clears throat> Christ gave these things, and those who carefully handle the word come to certain conclusions. And while they may not dot the I, cross the T at every single point, they all agree on the main meaning of these qualifications. So, Matthew Poole says, quote, he must be one that watcheth his flock and is attentive to his work. One that will neither be long absent from his flock nor yet sluggish while he is with them. Let me give you an, 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 an idea. Give you an example of, of what I mean. An elder, again, imperfect, He's not going to catch everything. But to the best of his ability, he'd be catching all that he can of what, who and what the condition of Christ's flock is. We begin our monthly elder deacon meeting with the elder asking the, uh, the deacons, is there anything that you think we need to know about? Now, let me clarify quickly. The deacons are not spies, and they're not trying to spy on the congregation. But very often, because of their interaction, and, and we have deacons that interact with the folks in this congregation, sometimes they hear something that people do not bring to us. Uh, we learned in one meeting that someone who had been coming here for a while and uh, had been here for quite a while, everyone thinking uh, that the person uh, would become a member, was actually leaving. The elders didn't say one word to the elders. They ministered to that family. Not one word. And we were, uh, both of the elders at that time, we were shocked as we could be. But that immediately put us into action so that we could say, have we offended you? Is there anything the elders need to repent of? Is there anything that the congregation has done, someone in the congregation, that needs to be repented of? We certainly don't want you to leave. If it's your decision to go just because there are things here you're dissatisfied with, that's fine. Uh, it's a voluntary. The churches of Christ are voluntary. But at the same time, if there is sin that needs to be dealt with among the Lord's people, then we need to know it. So, that's watching, that's hearing, that's then dealing with the flock. And I don't mean dealing in a hard way. I mean going to the situation and trying to make sure that there has been no offense given, no stumbling block given. Now, let me uh, example, give you an example of this in, in another way. 
years ago when the cell phone first came out, the Internet, that does seem a long time ago, doesn't it? How do we live without those things? I've been around long enough that they've only been in a very tiny part of my life. But when they first came out, the Internet was filled with videos of people walking along with their cell phones and falling into holes and falling into fountains and, you know, walking out in the middle of the street and almost being run over. In fact, there were some people that were injured in that way, tripping over things in front of them. And so now what do we see there? Somebody locked in to their life. It's just their life, just what they're doing. Completely unconcerned, worse, completely unaware of what's going on, where there is danger and not being aware of it, right? Someone like that is not qualified to be an elder. There are people who have tunnel vision. The only thing for them is just their family or just their friends or just the three people at the church that they like. That will not work. It actually doesn't work for Christianity, but it's far too uh, distributed widely. <clears throat> but for an elder, he, can't, he cannot pick and choose. It's Christ's flock, and he ministers to all, or he's not an elder. It doesn't matter if he can preach like Spurgeon. It's fine for him to get up and preach occasionally and to preach like Spurgeon. But that's not caring for the flock as such. I hope we see the importance there. You cannot, it's not healthy for anybody to just live in their own little world. But it's a disqualifying characteristic for a man who thinks he's called to be an elder. He can't live in that pinched world. Our shepherd and Lord Jesus Christ, the best shepherd after God's own heart, was vigilant and constantly knew the state of his disciples. Hey, uh, what were you all arguing about as we were on the way? Um, They didn't want to talk about it because they were arguing who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Christ knew something, and he said, well, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to teach you. Took a child, set him before them, and said, all right, unless you're converted, become like a child. You're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. What's what he's been preaching is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. (laughs) They're his disciples, but he calls them to attention. He knew what was happening, and he often knew the the situations in which he was in with pharaohs, excuse me, with Pharisees and Sadducees and with others. So, the Lord Jesus knows. I mean, let's be honest. If you're a Christian, how encouraged would you be if you thought, well, you know, Jesus is always talking to him. Why didn't he ever talk to me? Why don't, I mean, I go to the word, dead as a doornail. 
I, I, I listen to sermons, don't get it, etc., etc. I mean, am, am I left out? No, you want Christ, and you want Christ to teach you. And you want Christ, not only that, you want Christ to love you. And when you're mature enough and you have your head on right, you want him to correct you even to reproof and chastening. So it is with an elder, at least one called of God. And I hope that as we continue to go through this, you're beginning to have an image formed in your mind of how deformed American religion is. If churches were serious about what has been commanded by the head of the church for who should and should not be its leadership, we would see a completely different landscape out there. So, the Lord Jesus Christ constantly knew the state of his disciples, the state of his generation. He would say over and again, this generation. He knew the state of at least the world around him. Paul said to the Ephesian elders, therefore, watch. Therefore, watch. And remember that by the space of three years, I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. He loved God's people. And he could reprove them, rebuke them. He could love them. He could comfort them. But he could also say, all right, now the next time I come back, Corinthians, do you want me to come with a rod? Anybody waking up? Love doesn't always mean cotton candy comfort. Now, every faithful parent here knows that. You love those children. If you love them as you normally do, you would probably give your life for them. But you know that there are times when they need discipline, chastening. The scripture does not say, behold, the goodness of And severity of God for nothing. His love comes to us good. It comes to us severe sometimes. Well, that being said, this is what Paul says to the the elders. Watch. Watch. I've been warning you. And false teachers are coming. And it is quite obvious by the letters to Timothy that it came. And the church has been knocked off the track by false teachers. So, pastors must be vigilant because Christ wants his people to be vigilant. Did you know that? The Lord doesn't want you living in your own little secluded, insular community. He wants you to be aware of what's going on Around you. I'm not saying that doesn't mean that we have special love for some people. There's something wrong about that. It's not. 
But when we become secluded, when I go to a church of 200 people and I hang around with about five of them, there is something wrong. The Lord wants us watching. If you're watching, you might find out that some of your brothers and sisters desperately need prayer. That you can walk with them and carry the load with them. When you're insular, eh, just the people right in your purview. That won't work. It's not biblical Christianity. And that's why there are to be leaders that know what's going on. So that God's people learn how to find out and know what's going on. Pastors must be vigilant, as I said, because Christ wants his people vigilant. Jesus said to Peter, James, and John, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. Watch. Watch for temptation. They didn't, and they fell into temptation. They denied their Savior. Regarding his second coming, our Lord Jesus says, Watch ye therefore. Watch. I am coming back. Watch. He said, What I say unto you, I say unto all. Watch. It's not just for this little handful. He tells them, Everybody. Pastors face many problems. They have to watch. You can get so inundated with issues and problems that you miss things. And that's miserable for any true pastor. They face many problems, some of them highly emotional, some of them unexpected, some of them stressful and weighty, some of them devastating. They must be mentally and emotionally balanced and therefore vigilant. Well, number two, <clears throat> a candidate for eldership must be sober. This next word that Paul uses is sober. And of course, it can mean uh, Abstaining or handling moderately wine. This appears in both Timothy and Titus. But the word means self-controlled. That's, once again, the heart of the word. It means prudent. A lot of us probably don't know what the word prudent means. I hope you do. It, uh, Solomon uses it all the time. Prudence is it is self-control. It is wisdom with caution added. It's wisdom with caution added. Not only that we see and we understand and we can apply things, but there's always just watching to be cautious. You might say something that was unnecessary, like I almost did a minute ago. By the way, it wasn't about Jared's mom. It was about Jared. So all that being the case, this idea is, is very important. It, it means self-control, prudent, sensible. There has to be some common sense. 
some are obviously more gifted with common sense than others. I know that's the case. When I worked with Pastor Clarence, I often felt like I didn't have any. <clears throat> but moderate in one's behavior. Can we hear that? Moderate in one's behavior. Now, that should raise a question for some of us, right? Moderate in your behavior. Wait a minute. To serve the Lord Jesus Christ might mean it will cost me my life. How moderate is that? I mean, that's all the way, isn't it? But the fact is, what it means is in a general sense, uh, in, in daily behavior, one needs to be moderate, not out of control. Huh? That's the idea. Someone who's got a sense of reining himself in. There are moments when you've got to rein yourself in. Paul. For Paul, this is one of the most important words describing the Christian life. Sober. It shows up throughout the three uh, pastoral letters. Paul's near the end of his life. And what's he hitting on when he talks about the Christian life? Well, there are a number of things. But generally speaking, they're almost all rooted in the word that he keeps coming back to. Which means self-control. Why should an elder be worried about self-control? Because Christ wants his people to be self-controlled. He, Paul, I wish we had time to look at, at all of these in detail, but we don't. Paul um, wanted the aged men to be temperate. It's the same word translated sober here. He wanted the aged men to be temperate. He wanted the younger women to be discreet. That's the same word. Sober. Self-controlled. He wants women everywhere to dress with modesty and sobriety. Self-control. You don't say, oh, that's a man. That just looks so cute. That just looks wonderful. I've got to have it. And then you go in and all of the young men have to look at their feet through the entire service. Because you're dressed immodestly. Modesty is not a little thing. Paul gives the command regarding it in the context of worship. You don't want to be somebody that drags a child of God out of a peaceful and important worship by what you wear. Paul knew that. He said, this is what I want for the women. And he's talking about the context of worship. And what we learn in worship should generally be applied outside of worship. We're to learn in here how to live out there. <clears throat> so, he, want, he only has one thing to say about young men. Be sober-minded. Self-control. Self-control. Young men, get on board. Learn how to govern your appetites, your emotions, your thinking. <clears throat> Amazing that all the things that he says to the others, older women, older men, younger women, and then he gets to the guys and just says, sober up. Sober up. 
you're going to have to lead. If you can't lead you, you're going to be a washout as a husband, as a father. You certainly won't be an elder. So, it's an, it's an important word. Sober means being in control of yourself. And this word is connected to the, one of the most characteristics of the Christian life. And it's evidence. Listen carefully. Becoming sober. None of us comes into the world that way. This is something that grows in us by the power of the Holy Spirit and our submitting our minds and our hearts and everything about our lives to the Word of God. He, he says it's an important evidence of God's grace in your life. I don't know if I'm a Christian or not. Are you sober? Are you growing in self-control? And that can cover all kinds of things in our lives, can't it? He says, for the grace of God that brings salvation, lets you live like the world, dress like the world, watch what the world watches, listen to what the world listens to, and do everything that's virtually indistinguishable from those who are on the way to hell, but you're going to heaven. That's not what it says. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared to all men, all kinds of people, teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. If you don't know what those are, how do you know you're denying them? If you're not denying them, what does that say about the grace of God? This is all really very simple. Denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live. Live. First word in the list, soberly. In control. In other words, it's not just for an elder. He's got to pass on to the Lord's people the desire, the hunger to walk in self-control. One of the things about your sinfulness was that there were things that governed you. You were a slave to your lust, your passions, even if it was only on the inside. And some of you, unfortunately, sitting right here, may be slaves right now. And I want you to know the grace of God saves people from it. He saves them, and He builds them, and He grows them. The Lord doesn't have any stillbirths. Never. So, Teaching us that, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly in control of ourselves, righteously and godly in this present world. Right now. Right now. So, both vigilant, as we looked at prior to this, and sober ultimately mean that a man or woman, but in this case a man, as a candidate for eldership, restrains himself from overindulgence and excessive behaviors. God's people need to see him exercise common sense and prudence and to control himself. 
Listen to a man that can't control himself, that can't control his, simp- uh, his temper. He's not going to be any good once he has to start counseling people. When people come to you very often, they don't want counsel. They want you to tell them which one of them is right. And people can be very anger-producing. Some of you probably never get angry, but some of us do. All right? You have to be able to control yourself in situations where people are sitting there and attacking your doctrine and attacking, you know, I don't know, the ties your wife gives you. God's people have an, an unlimited number of issues. They just do. And you know what a lot of them do? They go right on living with their issues and just saying, I'm saved by grace. You're not reading the right Bible. Right? Well, we thank God for his amazing grace. I need it every day. And so do you. But the fact of the matter is, when you say the grace of God just lets me go on with my anger, with my, with my uh, grudge, uh, with, with my habit, and I don't want anybody to know that I have. When you go on saying, it's okay by grace. You're misunderstanding the scriptures. The grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present world. You know what that takes? Jesus Christ to save you. Jesus Christ to sanctify you. If you are saved, he's in the process of sanctifying you. If you're tired of your slavery, get to Christ. Get to Christ. He sets people free. Free. Some of you would love to be free. Come to Christ. His grace is truly amazing. If what you were before God saved you in Christ was foul, and you think, well, I'm just always going to be this way or that way. You need to know John Newton, the man who wrote Amazing Grace. His life was filthy beyond words. And as he would attempt to come to Christ, he would fail and go right back to his wicked life. He started and stopped so many times, most people believed he would never be saved. And God, in his amazing grace, saved that man. And he became one of England's greatest preachers. That's what Jesus does. He sets the prisoner free. That's where we want to live. Well, if that's the case, part of that freedom is learning how to control yourself. And not being a slave to anything but Jesus Christ. Anyone but Christ. Uh, Lord Jesus, just tell me what to do. Show me how to do it. Take me where you want me to go. Just whatever you want. But let me walk with you. Boy, he, he, one of the first things he'll start teaching you is self-control. Doesn't matter what it is. You can even take good things and, and overdo them. Well, God's people need to see a man exercise his common sense and his prudence, his caution. 
He should not be a person given to being out of control. Were you there last night? Oh, yeah, man, he was out of control. You don't want that said about you as a believer. You certainly don't want that said about you as a man who was called of God to serve his people. So an elder will face numerous difficulties, trials, afflictions, and problems in which he must remain as objective as possible. And you have a a husband and a wife sitting in front of you. And there was a day when they looked at each other with starry eyes and said, I do. And a few years down the road, they, they have murderous rage, anger, sin. You sit down and you start trying to work out the issues. You have to remain objective. You just can't start off by going, um, I'm with the man, you know. You've got to hear the thing. You've got to work through. You've got to use common sense. You might even have to say, you know what? This is a very difficult situation. Why don't we do this? Give me another week or two. I want to consult with some men that I know are very wise. And let me get back to you. We don't have all the answers. You've got to be able to think and not just emote. Everybody understand? One of the religions of this country is I just express myself. Right? That's not the Bible religion. The Bible religion is self-control. That's one of the things it produces. Not the only thing, but again, Paul begins to use it almost as the catchword for the description of the Christian life. In control. Nobody does it perfectly. I know that. I would have to resign today. I already would have resigned. But what follows when we fail in those matters? Repentance. 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 Well, so uh, he must, uh, he will face challenges with uh, disagreements and self-control. And when you're sitting there trying to reason with someone who's obviously governed by their, their emotions and they can't think, you can put five different sentences in front of them. They can't think through what you're telling them. They're just, con- I mean, they're just eating up. But you have to say, well, let's work on this. We want to pray about something. All right, you're having trouble holding on. I understand these are very, very painful things. But let's see if we can calm down and call on the Prince of Peace to grant us some peace. And let's work through this. It's amazing how it can happen. You've been taught by your flesh and this uh, culture to be governed by how you feel. And I see it all the time in the Lord's people. It originates with the flesh, but we have a culture that just throws gallons of fuel upon it. I feel, I feel God's people actually stopped saying a century or two ago, they, start, they stopped thinking, saying, I think or I believe. Everything is I feel. How do you feel about this? I don't feel very good about it. Oh, okay. Right? Christians talk like that all day, every day. Instead of, I think 
this way. And I do because Paul says this to the Corinthians. I think you've been taught to live governed by your feelings. Feelings are okay. We're not throwing feelings out the window. But they can't be the governor. You need to think. And that's part of self-control. That's part of the Christian life. Think. Don't just be governed by that flash of good feeling because it can be gone tomorrow. I thought you loved me. Yeah, well... You can't be governed by that. You need to know what biblical love is. Till then, please do everybody a favor and don't get married. Because you'll be taking up a lot of somebody else's time. Okay, number three. We're just about done there. I'm going to tell you how vigilant I am. I noticed that someone had messed with my clock and turned it up about 10 minutes. (laughs) Caution. I'm walking with caution. Don't mess with my clock. So, uh, candidate for an eldership must be of good behavior. Wow. Why in the world would that even have to be in there, right? For Christians, why would we have to say good behavior? Isn't that expected? It is. But very often... Most of us, and especially young Christians, don't know what it looks like. They don't know what a biblical Christianity looks like. And there have to be models. Imperfect. Imperfect models, but models. When Paul speaks of good behavior, he means pertaining to being modest Now, not modest in the sense of of what you wear or don't wear. It means modest in the sense of humility, humbleness. He says it's pertaining to being humble in the sense of moderate and well-ordered and having characteristics or qualities that evoke admiration or delight. An expression of high regard for persons, respectable, honorable. He's not just a fishing buddy. In fact, he doesn't have to be a fishing buddy or a hunting buddy. But he has to have a behavior that that approximates walking with Christ. There are some men that I've known in my life, Conrad Murrow being one of them, but I've known some others that I just wanted to be around them because when they prayed, I knew that they were not strangers before the throne of grace. When they prayed, my heart went with them with the presence of Christ When they lived, they were fallible men. But when they failed, they acknowledged it. In fact, Conrad and I, I won't go into the details of this, but but we had something happen, um, which he believed he needed to call me and correct me about my children. 
So I said, go ahead. I mean, the fact that he wanted to talk about this, I was trembling before he started into it. But by the time we got through it, I said, and this was kind of like the uh, punchline, I said, they left that meeting because they heard one of the preachers say this in his, in his sermon. And they looked at each other and they said, that is not what daddy teaches. And so they left and wouldn't go into the next sermon. I said, brother, I'm as happy as I can be that that's what you're telling me. <laughs> I'm sorry that it troubled other people that they left that session. But they were obeying me. And by extension, they were obeying the word of God. They said, that's foreign doctrine to us. We're out. After we finished, Conrad, you'd have had to know him. I loved him dearly. Conrad said, well, we've both learned some things. And we'll both be better men because of it. And I said, praise the Lord. Right? I like being around men like that. They're honest. He acknowledged he got too angry, which was rare. But what I'm saying to you is some of you have friends. You like being around your friends. That's fine. Have friends. But do they love Christ? Is there anything about them that really says they love Christ? Do you pray together ever? Do you talk about the scriptures ever? I'm not saying you have to, when you walk up, say, Hi, I forgot so love the world that he gave his only begotten son. I'm not saying you have to do that. But what I am saying is, why are they your friend if Christ isn't what brought you together and is growing you together? Why? Walk with the wise. Now, it's exactly that way a man that's going to be a pastor. Does he love good men, good people? Does he have good behavior? Is there anything about him you want to learn from him? That's one of the reasons he's there. Take advantage because he won't be there forever. I'm telling you, if you didn't get to know Clarence Simmons, you robbed yourself. I mean, you robbed yourself, a man of good behavior and who had good, loved good men. He had a bevy, just like I do, of men that we love and we talk to and we pour our hearts out to. We encourage and exhort one another. Good behavior. An elder cannot expect God's people to respect or honor him if he does not act honorably. His mind and actions must speak of a life bathed in prayer and the transforming power of God's word. I mean, I've seen men, they can stand in a pulpit, man, they can whoop it up, they can preach, and they can get everybody in there thumping their Bibles and hollering, amen. They get out of the pulpit and they're different people. God won't have that. Remember, Paul commanded Timothy, meditate upon these things, give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. 
you should see that when someone gives his heart, his mind, his soul to the scriptures, his heart, his mind, his soul to prayer and to ministering to God's people, there ought to be growth in him. He ought to be able to take reproofs and bear them, sift through them and say, yeah, they're right about that. I gotta, I've got to deal with this. I want to be around men like that. I want good behavior like that. And it should be with anyone who's looking to be a pastor. Take heed to thyself. Watch yourself. Vigilant. And under the doctrine. Be vigilant about the doctrine. Continue in them. For in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. It's connected directly to the ministry of the word and the salvation of souls. No pastor is saved by his good works, but he can destroy a gospel witness with his life, with his mouth, in a few thoughtless words. In the theological lexicon of the New Testament, Sesla Speak and James Ernest say, quote, These men must have not only a decent life, but dignity combining seriousness and courtesy much more so the cosmos man could be uh, ordered behavior who has a sense of responsibility a feeling of duty and decency that's why i hate it to me i hate it when people say well you know your job as a pastor i don't have a job i don't have a job and i'm not your hireling I've been appointed by God to do something, and I will do that to my last breath. But this is not a job. It is a mission. It is a ministry from God. And so it is for every true pastor. I'm not unusual. Not in the slightest. Good behavior, sense of responsibility, well, you know, we're paying you. Drop that. I'm not here to talk about I came here without any hopes regarding pay. I wasn't coming looking for my vacation package. The Lord said, go. I'm here. And when he says, sit down, I'll be sitting by Myra. But I'm not your hireling. I'm not governed by your money. I am governed by the word of God. And that's it. I don't do it well. But I do it. That's it. I will stand before God. Just like Paul said to the Corinthians. Doesn't really bother me whether you judge me or not. I'm going to stand before God. That's, that's the opinion I'm concerned about. Concerned about it now and then. So let me give you John Gill, then we'll bring that to a close. The Baptist pastor and theologian said that this particular word means he must be of good behavior. He said, that means an elder must be, quote, neat and decent in his apparel, modest in his whole deportment and conduct 
and affable and courteous to all. Beautiful in his life and conversation, being adorned with everything that is graceful and comely. Close quote. Well, no fallible human being can live that without the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. And the best man you ever know will fail at some point. I won't bring up a name. I know a man, well-known, very, very, very fine man, pastor, all of that. And in a discussion with him, I asked him a question. And he lost it and got angry. And I was amazed. But then the amazement slipped away because I know I've done the same thing. Right? Pastors can fail, but they sure need to repent. And they need to make the people that they have failed in the presence of know it. If we say something and do something in the presence of the congregation, we need to repent before the whole congregation. <clears throat> if, I've, if I've failed somebody privately, I need to talk to that person, period. That's it. But it needs to be done. I mean, this book says, let the elders that sin be rebuked publicly. Can that happen? It should if they don't repent. This is pretty sobering stuff, isn't it? It's not a, oh, I went and got my religious sugar pops today. You came to worship God. And his word says some things that are as plain as they can be. And the American church is in deep trouble because it will not obey who should be in the pulpit and who shouldn't. Not because they're the greatest preachers in the world. It's because God has chosen them. The congregation has acknowledged that and they're doing their work, not their job. They're doing their ministry. So, Gill's statement is astounding. It cannot happen to any man apart from the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> and there will be many that will never even acknowledge that that's the case. But it can only come from a man who was born of God's Spirit, who is not what he used to be. That's what John Newton said. I am not what I used to be. I'm not what I want to be. And I'm not what I'm going to be. <laughs> but I'm on the way there. You know, that's it. All of God's people will be like Christ someday. Isn't that good? No matter how much you fail as his son or daughter, his grace will bring you through. So, uh, when we consider the field of men who would be elders, we need to take these things seriously. Think about them carefully. Repeat, nobody does this perfectly. Nobody. I've seen churches that were trying to start fall apart because the Lord himself couldn't have been the pastor of that congregation. They wanted a man that was so squeaky clean, you aren't going to find him. And they never did. And so they gave it up and all went to other churches. 
He's going he's gonna to have weaknesses. But what always makes the difference is, first of all, they're not scandals. And number two, they're followed with repentance. <clears throat> they don't have to have someone hold the gun on them to repent. So, we got through three of the four. Vigilance, sobriety, good behavior. That's what we're looking for. And we're praying, and I trust you're praying. Please, throughout all this, I urge you at the beginning, read First Timothy 3 repeatedly. Read it until those words are in your mind so that when you're looking or thinking about someone, and we'll be having some of them this year stand before you, <clears throat> that you're thinking according to the word of God. Why? Because it's Christ's church. We want it to run his way. And it always does best when it has biblically qualified pastors. Amen. Father, we thank thee for thy grace and mercy today. What a weak and fallible vessel you put up here to talk about these things. Father, were it not for the blood of Christ, were it not for the grace and mercy and love of Christ, uh, Father, uh, I would be sitting behind a desk somewhere or doing some kind of job for somebody. But, oh God, so it is with every one of the men that thou hast made pastor. They all know that they can't do a thing without thee. And they all know that thou dost love them and love them so that you can bring very sore chastening when they fail. We love thee and thank thee for it. There's no better father in heaven. There's no better father anywhere. And I pray, O righteous Lord, now, that thou wouldst by thy spirit fill the hearts of thy people with love and wonder for thee and that we would consider thinking about these things carefully, biblically, humbly. And I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. If you would please stand with me.